Would anything change in your life if you found out right now that Jesus never actually died? Assume the the Bible is the same, but imagine there is no crucified Christ. Would anything change? Would your life change at all? Here's Here's what would change for me. I wouldn't go to church. I wouldn't read the Bible. I wouldn't pray. I wouldn't waste my time on anything religious. I would abandon Christianity, and I would become a wild hedonist. I'd basically do what most people do in our culture. I would live completely for myself. I'd pursue whatever carnal, whatever uh, erotic, sensual, or thrilling pleasure that I wanted, as long as it didn't send me to jail, because then I couldn't pursue whatever wild pleasure that I wanted from there. If Jesus never actually died, what hope would I have? So I would change a lot about my life. If Jesus never died on the cross, we should all abandon Christianity immediately and live for ourselves in the pursuit of unrestrained hedonism. Because without the death of Christ, we are still dead in our sin. And this life is as good as it gets for us. Now, you might think that I'm crazy for saying this. You might have thought I was crazy before. You might think, hey, even if Christianity isn't true, it's still a very noble way to live, right? Well, listen carefully to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14, and then verse 19, and he wrote about Christ's resurrection, which assumes Christ's death. Paul said this. It's very interesting. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And then he says, and your faith is in vain. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul was saying that if Christ has not come back to life, then he is either still dead or he never died, which would nullify Christianity and make faith in Christ completely empty and pointless. Without the death of Jesus Christ... All is lost for us. But Paul said that the truth of Christ dying for our sins is of first importance. First of importance. There is nothing more important than the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus had no pulse. He took no breath for three days so that you and I could be rescued from our sin. That's all important. There is nothing more important than that message. And and yet, the simple truth of the death of Jesus Christ continues to be relentlessly challenged, both directly and indirectly. The swoon theory. This theory has been around for 200 years or so. The swoon theory basically says that though Jesus suffered crucifixion, he never actually died He was unconscious when they took him down from the cross and when they laid him in the tomb. And this theory says that Jesus eventually revived in the tomb after being placed there. 
The substitution theory says that Jesus of Nazareth was never actually put on the cross, but that someone was put on the cross in his place. Some propose that the substitute, I kid you not, was Judas. Uh, Others say that it was Thomas, the alleged twin brother of Jesus. The ascension theory, this says that Jesus was rescued from the cross and that he ascended into heaven without dying, which leads us into the Islamic theory. Now, I am no Islam scholar, okay? Test this. Uh, Nor am I saying that all Muslims agree on that. That's probably dangerous ground. Uh, But just listen to this. Badru Ketarega, a Muslim and vice chancellor and professor at Kampala University in Uganda, said this, quote, Muslims believe that Allah saved the Messiah from the ignominy or dishonor of crucifixion, end quote. Another Muslim said this, quote, we honor Jesus more than you Christians do. We refuse to believe that God would permit him to suffer death on the cross, end of quote. The Quran says this, certainly this is just one translation of a very difficult language, and for there, referring to the Jews, saying, indeed we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him. Nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. End of quote. Muslims reject the death of Jesus Christ. And so do countless other religions, cults, and irreligious people. The majority of the world cannot see the relevance of the death of Jesus Christ to their lives. It it makes no practical difference in their everyday life. And this is quite sad. C.S. Lewis said, quote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That is a killer quote. Thank you, C.S. Lewis, for your amazing mind. Thank you, God. There is no middle when it comes to Jesus. He is, other, he is uh, either of infinite significance or he does not matter at all. There is no middle road. The truth of Christianity makes the death of Jesus eternally relevant for us. If you take away Christ's substitutionary death, everything changes for us. Everything. And here's what I've prayed for you. The people that would be here this morning, I've prayed this. That the reality of the death of Jesus Christ would transform your life. Transform you. I want to see this happen. And and I've prayed that The news of the death of Jesus Christ would infiltrate your heart and produce lasting change, God-glorifying change. That's what the death of Jesus does. It transforms people. It sets them on a new path. It gives them new reason to live. It empowers people to live for God. Well, the time was right for Jesus to die. Jesus wouldn't give up his life until all of his work was done. He knew it was done in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
Jesus had perfectly completed everything that God his Father had sent him to do. Everything. Back in John 17, 4, Jesus prayed this to God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus got it done. He was a doer. He got it done. He had accumulated the merit needed to justify and redeem all of God's people. He had even sufficiently bore the wrath and the justice of God on the cross. The redemption of God's people at that moment was secured. And it was time for Jesus to die to seal the reality of salvation. Now when it says by finished, by finished, Jesus did not mean that he would do nothing after that that he would just be inactive. That's not what he had in mind here. He would quickly fulfill the prophecy of verse 28, among other future prophecies. He would resurrect. He would continue to intercede for God's people, for believers. But Christ knew that his work of redemption was done and that it was time, right then and there, to give the ultimate gift, his life. So many times before in the Gospel of John, we heard that his hour had not yet come, but here, his hour had come. It was time, and Jesus knew it. He was thirsty. His thirst fulfilled yet another ancient prophecy. Have you, have you been catching how many ancient prophecies are fulfilled here in John? John's just cracking it out of the ballpark, giving us a great reason to believe the Bible. Some think Psalm 22, verse 15 is in view, which says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. That sounds like a thirsty moment, right? Um, But more likely, Jesus was referring to Psalm 69, verse 21, which says this, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Sour wine was actually a popular uh, drink at the time to quench thirst. Many people drank it, and people used uh, these sponges to soak up the liquid and then to squeeze it in their mouth. And when you think sponges don't go to synthetic sponges that you use in your kitchen, that's kind of a gross imagery. These were the animal, sea creature sponges. Standing by the cross was a jar full of sour wine, a common drink. Maybe the soldiers were drinking it. After Jesus said, I thirst, they took a hyssop branch. And they put this uh, saturated sponge on it with sour wine, and they put it up to his mouth, and, and he drank some of it. And after drinking a bit, he said, it is finished. And that in the Greek is actually just one word. And interestingly, the same word is used in Matthew 17, 24 to refer to a tax being paid in full. So historically, this word has been found on tax receipts stating the tax has been paid in full. At that moment, on the cross, Jesus declared that the sin debt of God's people was paid in full. Full. Done. It was done. It was finished. It was accomplished. Verse 30 ends, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus, the perfect man, was dead. Jesus died willingly. He dropped his head. And John said he gave up his spirit. Jesus was active. He did something. He accomplished something. He handed his spirit over to God as sufficient payment. 
The word spirit in verse 30 means his breath, his human life. And this is what John means when he said, uh, what Jesus meant rather, when he said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Rome didn't take it. Pilate didn't take it. The Jews didn't take it. Jesus gave it. Luke 23, verse 46, gives an interesting perspective. It says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus willingly gave up his spirit, his life, to God as the only and final satisfaction for sin, which was the most loving act of all of history. Now, I want you to look closely at verses 31 through 37 because they conclusively confirm that Jesus actually died. And I want you to be sure that he died. As a Christian, you need to have no doubt in your mind that Jesus died on that cross. No pulse, no breath, dead. And I want you to see that. And then I want to help you understand what his death actually accomplished, what can be enjoyed by faith, and how that applies to you. Well, the Gospel of John is among other ancient testimonies which confirm the actual death of Jesus. So if you ever talk with a Muslim uh, about this or someone who believes in the swoon theory or the substitution theory or the ascension theory, you can use the historic source of John to show them the truth of Christ's actual physical death. Jesus died on Friday. It was the, uh, the day of preparation for the Sabbath, which is on Saturday. And in Deuteronomy 21... God commanded Israel to take executed bodies that were in a tree to take them down and to bury them before the next day because a hangman was cursed by God. And the body would actually defile the entire land of Israel. So this was very important to get them down uh, before the Sabbath. Removing Jesus' body from the cross and the others Uh, would have been even more pressing considering that the next day was a high day. It was the Sabbath of Passover week, a particular uh, special day. So this was important. So the Jews asked Pilate to perform what was called crurifragium. Crurifragium on the three crucified men. Crurifragium was the, the practice of breaking the crucified victim's legs so that they couldn't any longer push up to get breath. And so it accelerated their suffocation or their death. So the quicker these three men died, the quicker they could take the men down off the cross, get them buried before the final um, preparations for the Sabbath day needed to be made. So first, understand how pressing it was to confirm that Jesus was dead and to bury him before sunset. Verse 32 says this, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Now keep in mind that Pilate, the authoritative voice of Rome in Palestine, had officially ordered the crucifixion of these three men. He demanded it. Three very serious convictions. Roman soldiers, therefore, were under this strict order to make sure that these three men got it, to make sure that they died. A Roman soldier could actually be executed if they botched a capital uh, punishment order. So there is, there is little question that these soldiers would absolutely confirm that these three men were dead. Personal stake in it. To make sure the soldiers 
uh, just to make sure that they were dead. The soldiers broke the legs of the two thieves, and soon after they broke their legs, the thieves died. Then in verse 33, something very noteworthy happens. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, maybe they just thought he was dead. And they were like, well, he looks dead. And they just took him down by mistake. And he actually was still breathing and he was, he was still alive. Let me give you nine reasons. There are probably more, but here are nine reasons why that is completely ridiculous. Okay? This is why that's far-fetched intellectually, historically, scientifically, and biblically. Number one, he was so stressed out in Gethsemane that he sweated drops of blood. Number two, Jesus had suffered verberaccio, the worst level of Roman flogging. Some people died from verberaccio. He suffered significant blood loss before he ever went on the cross. Number three, Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head. He was bleeding profusely at this point. Number four, Jesus had to walk from Jerusalem to Golgotha after being flogged. And he was so broken that he could not carry the crossbeam the entire way. Number five, Jesus had two nails in his two hands and at least one nail through his feet and he'd been agonizing on the cross four hours, suffering excruciating pain and blood loss. People didn't survive that. There is no possible way that Jesus survived the cross. To say Jesus could revive after verberaccio and crucifixion is completely ridiculous, but there's more. Number six, Multiple Roman soldiers confirmed he was dead. Roman soldiers, they had experience crucifying people. They looked death in the face. They knew what a dead guy looked like. They had experience with this. Jesus' head hung limp. He wasn't pushing up anymore to get a breath. He just hung there limp. You do not need to be a doctor to understand he's dead. They're looking at him. Number seven, the soldiers were so confident that Jesus had died, they didn't bother breaking his legs, which if you consider was a direct order from Pilate, you don't ignore orders from Pilate, but if Jesus was already dead, Pilate's order was obviously unnecessary because the whole point of that order was to confirm that they were dead to make them die faster. So if he's already dead, it's out out the window. All right, number seven, The soldiers were so confident that Jesus had died. Oh, yeah, I said that, the cruel fragium. Number eight, look at verse 34. This is what it says. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. To make absolutely sure that he was dead, a soldier stabbed him. If Jesus was still alive, perhaps he would have twitched when he had a spear thrust into his side. Instead, blood and water came gushing out, which is scientific evidence that Jesus had already died. That confirmed his death. There are several good medical theories out there about the exact uh, cause or or purpose of, of Christ's death and why blood and water would have come out of his side. He may have suffered pericardial effusion or the pericardial sac that is surrounding the heart fills with fluid. Uh, Maybe pulmonary edema and pleural effusion, don't be impressed, I have no idea what these things are, had, uh, maybe that had something to do with it, where the the heart experiences severe complications and the lungs fill with fluid and, and or the lungs surround with fluid. Whatever the medical explanation is for his death, 
John included this little detail in his gospel to point out that Jesus had died. He was dead. And there were people around that confirmed that the cross was effective. There were eyewitnesses. One more thing to consider, number nine, after Jesus was confirmed dead by Roman authority and after he was taken down, multiple people handled his corpse and multiple things were done to his corpse, a detailed process that makes a misperceived, mistaken death and recovery completely impossible. They would have seen him breathing as they're interacting with him. And as they're wrapping his head, which might have suffocated him in and of itself. Here's the point. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus died on the cross. And eyewitness and historical testimony, even science, confirms it. And you might find this interesting. They were doing, in 1968, they were doing this dig. uh, I think it was for construction by Jerusalem. And they found an ossuary, which is a bone box. So it was a really old ossuary from the first century, I guess, or I'm not sure what century. And there was a skeleton inside of it of a man that was crucified. There was a a nail through this this guy's bone in his heel, and the tip of it was actually uh, down, and so you're not getting that back out. So they just left it there, and they buried the guy as he was. Now, some have suggested there is not conclusive evidence for this, so you need to touch this. There are different viewpoints on this, but some have said that the man's legs were broken at at some point, which gives credence to the practice of curufragium from John 19. There's still more. Verses 36 and 37 mention two more ancient prophecies that were fulfilled by these events. The the first prophecy that was mentioned uh, referred to several Old Testament scriptures. Both Exodus 12, verse 46, and Numbers 9, verse 12, refer to the Passover lamb. And if you know about the Passover, Israel was not to break any of the Passover lamb's bones. Jesus is the Passover lamb of God, who was slaughtered for us, and none of his bones were broken. That's a great connection. But Psalm 34, verse 20 is likely in view, which says this, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The second prophecy is, uh, that was fulfilled was from Zechariah 12, 10, which mentions God's pouring out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy on the house of David. And then it says this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. There also seems to be a a hint at Psalm 22, verse 16, which mentions pierced hands and feet, and then verse uh, 17, which says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Fulfilled prophecy strengthens the certainty, the absolute certainty of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus was and is God. Jesus was and is a human being, flesh and blood. And a popular view of the Gnostics in the second century was a heresy called Docetism, which taught that Jesus Christ was not actually human, but only appeared to be human, and therefore he never really was crucified on the cross. He only appeared to be crucified. But John said, the word became flesh and dwelt, lived among us, and we have seen his glory. This is written by a man who interacted with the man. Combine that with all of the bodily descriptions of Jesus, which John includes throughout his gospel, things like Jesus being thirsty in verse 28, drinking from his mouth from a sponge in verse 29 and 30, even bowing his head in verse 30, among other things. Jesus 
was fully God, is fully God. But he was and is also fully man, and he actually died. So let's bring this simple truth home. Let's bring it home to you. Let's try it this way. If I told you that in 1930, an 89-year-old man by the name of Henry de la Salle died in Paris, France, you probably would think, okay, and why should we care about that? All right, and rightfully so. I don't think that you're a cold-hearted person if you don't care about some guy dying in the 1930s, okay? You don't even know this guy. But it might pique your interest to find out that on March 23, 1930, Mrs. Lillian Mulrup, a Chicago actress, officially received word that she had inherited a considerable sum of money, a fortune. What do Henry and Lillian have in common? The plot thickens. Five years earlier, Lillian's uncle, George La Lamontier, died in Australia and left her with an inheritance of $60,000. That's not a bad sum in 1925. Her uncle George had a friend, a companion in the Alaskan gold rush, named Henry. Here, Uncle George only mentioned Henry in letters to his niece, Lillian Mulrow. She hardly knew Henry. I'm not even sure that she ever met Henry. But in 1930, Henry de La Salle bequeathed to Mrs. Lillian Mulrow $700,000. That would be like $9.6 million today. Now, she did need to set $100,000 of that aside into a trust fund to help needy college students, uh, but her share was huge. Now, that's an interesting story. I, I read the newspaper, that, that's interesting to me. But we'll likely forget it soon, you and me both, and I'm preaching it. And we'll move on with life because it's really not that significant. It doesn't change us. But what if I told you that Henry de La Salle, who died in Paris, France, in 1930, was worth $2 million? When he died, and there still remains $1.3 million in his estate, which has actually, through time, grown to be right now worth $17 million. And what if I told you that Henry left the remainder of his inheritance to you? Today, you're $17 million. Now, at first, you hear the name of Henry de la Salle, you don't care. Neither do I. Then you heard what he did for Mrs. Marup, so he becomes more fascinating. He's, this guy's interesting. He's generous. So this is noteworthy from history, but really not that interesting. He's interesting enough. But then you found out that you were the beneficiary of Henry's extravagant generosity. Your life was transformed immediately. Or I should say, would have been transformed immediately because he didn't leave you any money. I'm sorry to tell you that. None of us are rich. But if he had, not only would his name be important to you for the rest of your life, but his generosity would be important. And not only his generosity, but what he gave you would be important. Your life would never be the same. Completely transformed just with one bit of information and the reality of it. Change forever. You can hear about the death of Jesus Christ and not care at all. You can hear 
about what he did, what his death accomplished, and not care at all. The Bible says his death made purification for sins. It says that Jesus secured eternal redemption, not by means of the blood of goats or the blood of calves, but by means of his own blood. The Bible teaches that once for all, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and he bore the sins of many. And when you hear that, when you hear all about the accomplishments of Jesus Christ and what he did through his death, he probably at least becomes a more fascinating historic figure. At least you might be a little bit more intrigued. At least he, he seems generous or he seems like a notable man, uh, something worthwhile mentioning, but you still might not find him relevant. You, you still might not be transformed by the reality of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You might admire what he did for others But have you believed in and been transformed by his death for you? You need to receive Christ by grace, through faith. You need to receive all the glorious benefits of his cross by faith for him to totally transform your life. You know, have you ever heard people say, I gave Christianity a try, but it didn't work out for me. I know of at least one guy who said that. You didn't know Christ. You must be transformed with all of the benefits. Be transformed by the grace of his death to make you different, truly different in the heart, to make you cherish his name forever, to make you cherish his generosity, to make you cherish what he has accomplished for you. Only he can give you these things. It is only when you realize that Jesus died for you and for us, and only when you receive him by faith as the treasure and power of your life that you really understand. I mean, you really get the extent of his love and grace and mercy and compassion and kindness and joy. Jesus died for you. Now, why is John so intent to lay out for his readers a a very clear and detailed account of the death of Jesus Christ? It was a gory, it is a gory story. It's gross. Now, why would John tell it? Was John just sick and twisted and he, he got a kick out of gory details and torture and death? So he's writing about it. No, he was a historian that wanted very, very much to convey to you the life-transforming truth of the death of Jesus so that you would believe it, that you'd believe it, and that in believing it, you would find your greatest joy and your greatest pleasure in God himself. John told a story to believe in as fact And the kind of belief that John desired to fill your heart is not only information, it's transformation. John intended that the powerful truth of the death of Jesus Christ would not only inform you, but transform you from the inside out. That you'd never be the same after hearing this story. That it would grip you, that it would change your life, that it would set you on a new course. Listen to the compelling case John made in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness, 
His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Do you understand what that means? John was referring to himself. He was talking about himself. He saw Jesus dead with his own eyes. He knew that he was telling the truth. He wasn't lying. He was an eyewitness. And other eyewitnesses agreed with his account. And he told the true story of Jesus so that his readers would believe along with him. John wanted people to know the truth, the true story of Jesus. And that's what drove him to be a published author. Very successful published author. Sold a ton of copies. Probably saw nothing from that. No royalties. John mentioned the term truth more than any other New Testament writer and if you read John honestly, just give it a chance and read it at face value. You're going to see how important it was for John to get the details right. And if you struggle with what to believe, even as a Christian or maybe as a non-Christian this morning, you struggle, I, I, I can't believe what I can't see. I wasn't there. I didn't see these things. And just know, I understand that. We like to see like physical evidence, but there are so many things that are outside that we will never see, and we can choose just to reject them because we never saw, but you're going to reject all of history. You're going to believe nothing at the end of the day. And, and so I just want to encourage you, the words that you read in your Bible come from someone who was there and really wanted to get this right, to tell you a story that has impact, eternal impact. John felt the emotional anguish of watching his beloved master and savior and Lord die in anguish alone on a cross. You don't so easily forget that. And you know, John didn't understand it all. He couldn't process it, but then a day came when Jesus rose from the dead and John saw him, and then John was able to make more sense of all this. All that he taught, the reality of the resurrection transformed him. And, and John wanted you to understand the death of Jesus. John wanted you to read about what the cross means for your life. And he wanted you to be transformed by it too. Would anything change in your life if right now you found out that Jesus actually never died on the cross? I hope that within your heart, deep down, you would say yes everything would change. Everything about my life would change immediately. All would be lost. I would lose all hope in, in my life. Done. That is the God-exalting answer. Because if your answer is this, no, I really don't think that anything would change in my life. And uh, it'd probably just be life as usual. I'd just keep carrying on. Then my friend you have yet to know the glorious accomplishments of Christ. You have yet to receive the merits of Christ by faith. You have yet to experience the power of God's transformational grace in your life. You have yet to be transformed by the truth. What actually happened, reality, you must believe in the death of Christ, for through faith we experience the transformational power of the gospel in our lives. 
We're never the same after this takes root in us. When we are changed by the death of Christ, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, committing our lives to our brothers and sisters in the local church, it all becomes joy. It all becomes what we want to do. Not law, joy. I I want to because that just pleases God and I want God. And so what God thinks is important is now immediately important and relevant in my life because God does more than just tell you these things. By the death of Christ, he makes us Christian hedonists where we pursue our greatest joy and pleasure in God himself. That is our duty to run after Christ to find in him our everything. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. The gospel of Christ crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected is the center of our everlasting joy and pleasure in God. All is lost without the death of Christ. So let me just ask you this, my friend. Aren't you glad that Jesus died for you? Let's pray. Oh, great God, what you have accomplished for us in Christ is stellar. Honestly, God, I get so bored with the gospel. That is a problem with me, not the gospel. And I have a hunch that there are more than a few people here this morning that also grow tired of the cross. So here's what I pray, that your sovereign grace would rain down, that your Holy Spirit would produce such an immense desire to know the effects of the death of Jesus Christ in our lives, that you would take us deeper into the cross. This is not just a Sunday school lesson for little kids that when we grow up and become intellectual, we move beyond the gospel. This is life. God, please help me to see the glory of the death of Jesus Christ and help my friends unleash your spirit through your word, through the truth, through reality that we may know and cherish and treasure and love and adore Jesus for all that he is and all that he has done. And I pray now that we can respond with incredible singing of the joy of our Savior and all that we receive in him and in his death for us. In Jesus' name, for the fame of Jesus alone we pray. Amen.